Why don't we pick it up with uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, let me just mention, if you have any questions at any time, feel free to raise your hand and uh, ask. You don't have to wait till I'm at a stopping point or at the end of a lecture or talk. Just feel free to ask, raise your hand, get my attention. Uh, if you need to get up, walk around, stretch your legs or anything, feel free to do that. Uh, I am not easily distracted. I have seven children, all of whom live at home with me. So uh, I'm used to that. And uh, another thing, uh, if you have questions about topics that I'm not specifically focusing on, um, go ahead and ask those because what I'd like to do, if, if when you think about it, go ahead and ask them. If I don't answer it right then, what I want to do is register it up here and come back to it later because I know I'm not going to get through all of the topics that I've picked out here. And you may have questions about prayer, praise, sacraments, uh, singing hymns, psalms, instruments, style of music, things like that. I might not even get to that in the conference because we're, I'm behind schedule. Uh, so, but if you have questions about those sort of things, then I want to certainly make time to, for us to talk about them. Another thing is I have not always been Presbyterian and Reformed. I was raised Pentecostal, and I used to be a Pentecostal pastor uh, for six years. So I grew up in an extremely different kind of worship environment than what I'm used to now. So I know all about uh, different traditions, and particularly that one, and uh, how difficult it can be to transition from one kind of worship to another kind of worship. And, um, but anyhow, um, and you don't have to agree with me either on, on what I'm saying. Many in my congregation don't agree <laughs> uh, with me, uh, and that's okay. So feel, feel free to voice different opinions about certain things. Yes, sir. Yes. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, my f the first place I would go to look for that would be Meredith Klein's book called Images of the Spirit, and the second place I would go would be Meredith Klein's book called Kingdom Prologue. And the reason I would go there is because that's where I got the idea. And I know he develops it uh, there, uh, but I can't recall off the top of my head where that same phrase, uh, the spirit of the day is used, with regard to uh, the Lord coming in judgment. I know that the day of the Lord is certainly used like that in Scripture. And um, the day of the Lord is the day when God comes in his wrath. And there is a, uh, a theophany, a revelation of him, a uh, visible manifestation of him, uh, accompanied by a loud voice, thunder, and that sort of thing. You see this throughout Revelation. And uh, so I think the most uh, clearest connection we have to what happens in Genesis 3.8 is what we read in Exodus 19 and uh, then the later parallels, parallels to that. But as far as the exact phrase, the spirit of the day, referring to the day of judgment, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. W one thing that does come to mind, one other thing, really quick, sorry, uh, Acts chapter two, verses one and following. And it came to pass on the day of Pentecost, they were all together, this is my Pentecostal background, right? In the upper room, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm not gonna speak in tongues anymore. <laughs> But um, uh, <laughs> suddenly there came from heaven a, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them 
cloven tongues like as of fire. This is the theophany of Sinai, right? It's, it's the mighty rushing wind. It's the uh, appearance of fire, and it rested upon each one of them. That's the glory cloud resting on the church. This is when the church becomes the temple, okay, of God. Now, that, I've got to, you've got to connect the dots here to do that. Um, that is the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted would happen, or with what John the Baptist predicted would happen in Luke chapter 3. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that fire is the fire of God's glory cloud, uh, presence, pillar of fire, think of that. But it's also uh, baptism in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is an eschatological judgment that does not consume the church because Christ received that eschatological judgment instead of us so that the gift of the Spirit on Pentecost is for us a blessing. Christ receives it as the one who stood in the place of the covenant breaker. He receives that eschatological judgment upon himself and bears the, the wrath of God on himself so that we receive the glory cloud gift of the Spirit as the covenant blessing, not the covenant curse that we, that we deserve. Now, the, the one who develops that, I think, more clearly than anyone else is Richard Gaffin in a book called Perspective on, Perspectives on Pentecost, which is the reason why I left the Pentecostal church, by the way. So if you're Pentecostal and want to stay that way, don't read that book. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Yes, because the word cool should be translated spirit because it is the Hebrew word for spirit. Now that word can be translated wind or breath, and sometimes it is, for example, in Ezekiel 36, which we looked at last night. And I know you weren't here last night, but uh, it is translated breath in the ESV. Um, and there's a play on words sometimes because the Hebrew word can either mean spirit or breath or wind, and the Greek word too. And think, for example, of John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wants to, right? You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So likewise is everyone who is born of the spirit. Same word, pneuma, wind, spirit. I think it's the triune, per the triune persons of the Godhead revealed, uh, God is revealing himself as the triune God. But ordinarily, uh, we say it's the second person of the Trinity that's the, the locus of divine revelation. So it's, you're not wrong for thinking that, for sure. Yes, sir.
for the students mm -hmm. to own it and that right. what the author is doing is saying this is the meaning of the better and this is the opposite. Even if as you read it, if it's costly, then what what is it that you want to say to create a better one? Yeah. I it it does cause me frustration because I think it's it's misleading to translate it as cool. And it doesn't, and, and if you're not, if you know what the original is, if you, you don't have access to it or a way to find this out, and you kind of do through commentaries, but uh, then, you're, then you don't know. So I think it'd be better to translate spirit, or at least have it as a footnote as, as spirit. <laughs> and by the way, I was corrected. Cool of the day would be the morning, not the evening. So I've got to go back and redo my whole, whole, whole lecture. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, right. Yeah, and he doesn't know what's going on. Where's Adam? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and you've got to read Scripture. Um, you've got to understand that Scripture speaks about God in a manner of speaking, right, figurative ways. And so when God says, Adam, where are you? It's not that he's informationally unaware of where Adam is, and he's searching for him and can't find him, or something like that. Any other questions? Good time for questions. All right. So Genesis 3, 14, 15. Let's look there. Uh, God promises two things. One, to kill the serpent, destroy the serpent, and two, to save sinners. And uh, the agent or person who will bring about both, who will slay the serpent and save sinners, is the seed of the woman. Because of the fall, of course, it became impossible for man to ascend God's holy mountain and to stand in his holy presence because of his uncleanness, his defilement. And to do that on the basis of the first covenant, the covenant of works, God establishes a new covenant with a new Adam, new covenant head, representative, uh, who will bring about re redemption. There are two main covenants in Scripture. We call them the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace goes through various administrations throughout redemptive history until it reaches its uh, climactic final administration with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but the covenant of grace is first revealed in chapter 3. Now look at Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, your seed, her seed, two seeds, one, the offspring of the devil, servants of the devil, followers of the devil, the false worshipers, the other servants of God, true worshipers. He, her offspring, used here to refer to a single um, offspring of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, let me just mention a couple of things. The enmity that God puts between uh, the woman and the serpent is interesting. Uh, Mark Vanderhart says, when God said, I, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, Mark Vanderhart says, this presupposes that the serpent and the woman were in some kind of alliance or partnership. God changes that. He reverses it. The one you obey is your master. The alliance between the serpent and the woman, however, is not a relationship of peace and friendship. It is slavery. She's a slave of 
sin. God breaks that unholy alliance by placing or inserting enmity between those two groups of people. Enmity means division, hostility, conflict, antithesis, so on. Uh, And Meredith Klein says on this, Renewal of covenant with God was expressed by its negative corollary, alienation from Satan. In other words, God's going to alienate the woman from uh, and Satan and bring the woman back into reconciliation with himself. By sovereign divine initiative, sorry, I will put enmity, sovereign divine initiative, reconciliation would be effected between God and the new humanity, elect in the messianic descent of the woman, seed of the woman. Okay, now that seed of the woman will um, crush the head of the serpent. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Same Hebrew word, but I think crush the head is probably, given the context, uh, a, a good translation. Um, what that means is this. Christ will execute the curse on Satan. God announces a curse on Satan and the seed of the woman's the one who's going to carry it out. He's going to execute it. And victory over the adversary, the enemy, the devil... Uh, bringing deliverance to the rest of the woman's seed involves atonement for sin. He's going, his heel is going to be bruised. Okay, so suffering is the way to attaining the glory. His suffering is the way to achieving glory. And of course you see that uh, emphasized in Scripture. So the seed, uh, the seed of the woman is ultimately identified as Jesus. Uh, Galatians 4 verse 4, for example... Christ, in the fullness of time, was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, Galatians 4.4. Christ, then, is the serpent slayer. He's the serpent crusher. He's the redeemer, the new king priest, and he will crush the head of the serpent in a decisive battle. Uh, Jesus Christ will do what the last Adam, uh, will do as the last Adam, what the first Adam failed to do, to guard the garden from Invaders, unholy invaders, rebuke the tempter and kill him. Now, from verse 15 on, Genesis 3:15 on, that's the very first promise of salvation in the Bible, salvation through the seed of the woman. From that verse on, the worship of God has been tethered to the seed of the woman and his redemptive work of restoring and perfecting the communion bond that was lost in the fall. In other words, worship from Genesis 3.15 on is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the substance of the covenant of grace. He's the one who fulfills the covenant of grace. So as worship was originally a celebration of creation, we saw that last night, it was originally a celebration of creation in anticipation of the consummation. Worship now is not only a celebration of creation, but also of redemption, anticipating consummation. Genesis 3 is the very first administration of the covenant of grace, and that covenant of grace will continue to develop and advance through various uh, stages in history, various administrations of it, until it comes to its climax in Christ. Before his coming, though, the covenant of grace is administered in types and shadows that prefigure or foreshadow him and his redemptive work. For example, sacrifices, right? animal sacrifices. That's the most obvious one. Um, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament point forward to, they prefigure or foreshadow the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And when does the very first animal sacrifice take place? 
You might think it takes place in chapter 4 of Genesis, but I think it takes place in chapter 3 of Genesis. And, and I think you can see that in verse 21. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, which means here specifically animal skins. This would have been animal skins taken from a sacrificed animal. And he clothed them with those skins. Now what is this? Okay, God promises salvation, covenant of grace. God appends to the promise a sacramental sign signifying it, confirming the promise, which is what? The sacrifice of this animal. By killing an animal, Mark Vanderhart writes, to prepare clothing for Adam and Eve, we see that these two sinners are, number one, covered with something alien to them. What does that remind you of? Being covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, something foreign to us, alien to us, a righteousness not our own. Number two, the clothing is derived from the shedding of blood. And number three, it is the result of God's action, the Lord God made for them. God did this. It's not the action of the sinner, like they were doing for themselves, making loincloths out of fig leaves. And I would add to what Mark Vanderhart said, um, whenever God sacrifices the animal and clothes, clothes them in the animal skins, he makes tunics for them from the animal skins, they now bear the image of the one who died in their place. Did you hear that? They bear the image of the one who died in their place. Does that sound familiar to you? That was last night's lecture, right, from 1 Corinthians 15, bearing the image of Christ, the one who died in our place. Now, one other thing here uh, to point out, the word garments uh, or tunics is the same noun that is later used for the tunics of the priests the Levitical priests, to make them fit, to cover their nakedness, and to make them fit to be in God's holy sanctuary. Exodus 20, verse 26, 28, 42, and Leviticus 8, 13, for example. So it's the same term that's used. The same words are used regarding the clothing made for the priests. The first administration of the covenant of grace included word and sacrament. Word, the promise of salvation, and sacrament, the visible sign confirming that promise, indicating how it was to be fulfilled, namely through the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The sacrifice uh, bore the curse of the covenant breakers. They are the covenant breakers, Adam and Eve. They come under the penalty of the curse, and the sacrifice bears the curse in the place of Adam and Eve. And that prefigures Christ who will bear the curse on our behalf, Galatians 3.13, right? Um, which says, uh, what does it say? Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Now, after the fall, God promised in the covenant of grace to restore and perfect fellowship with him in his glory presence through the seed of the woman who, like the animal sacrifice, would die to atone for our sins and to remove our defilement and therefore to secure for us that second breath of the Holy Spirit. And Christ will do that in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son and until then, the covenant of grace will be administered by promises, prophecies, various types, and ordinances that foreshadow Christ. So worship is covenantal communion with God. I mean, kind of the main thing you learn from this is that worship is covenantal communion with God by means of the ordinances through which God establishes the covenant and then nurtures that covenant relationship. 
And it always has been that, from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3 and every subsequent administration. What is worship? It's covenant fellowship, covenant communion with God. How? So by means of the ordinances through which God established the covenant and nurtures that covenant with his people. Uh, one very quick thing to say, and we're done with Genesis. Genesis 3.24, uh, last verse, God drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. Last night we noticed that uh, the Garden of Eden had an eastward orientation, just like the tabernacle and temple, and a gate at the east. He placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way uh, to guard the way of the tree of life. So they were exiled from the holy garden temple because they were unfit to be there. They were unclean. Now, what's the significance of the cherubim and the flaming sword? Now, this is really interesting. Now, Meredith Klein again says, Angels regularly attended God's advent and glory for judgment. Genesis 3.8, God comes in judgment, his advent. Angels regularly attended that. They took over, the angels, the cherubim, took over man's forfeited guardianship of Eden preventing access until the Son of Man, when slaying the dragon accuser, vicariously suffered the sword of judgment on the tree of death and so reopened the way of the tree of life. Now, there's a thesis packed into that little uh, sentence. And let me explain what it is. So in order to get back into the garden, you've got to go through the gate. What's at the gate of the east of the garden? The flaming sword, right? So... In order for that way into to be opened, you have to go through the flaming sword. Someone goes through the flaming sword on our behalf and takes that judgment of God's divine wrath on himself. Who is that? Christ, right? Now, that's the reason when Jesus died on the cross, the exact moment that he died, what happened to the temple or in the temple? The veil was rent from top to bottom. What's on the veil? Cherubim, keeping people out of what? Holiest place, holy of holies, right? Um, where God's glory presence dwells. So Christ, in order to bring us back into the garden, uh, must pass through the flaming sword of God's judgment. He must die. But he doesn't simply return us to the garden because he passes the probation and receives... Uh, that eternal life, the second breath of the Holy Spirit in his resurrection, and partakes from the tree of life, what was symbolized in the tree of life, I'm speaking metaphorically here, right? What was symbolized in the tree of life, Christ receives in his resurrection. So he doesn't simply return us or restore what was lost, he, re he restores it and perfects it, he brings it to consummation. So to put it in other words, um, what we have in Christ is better than what Adam had before the fall. The fellowship the relationship, the communion with God that we have with Christ or with God in Christ is better than the relationship, the fellowship, and the communion that even Adam and Eve had with God before the fall. One of the ways you know that is that they lost their righteousness. We have a righteousness we can't lose, right? Our justification is forever. And, and We've got eternal life. We've got that consummative heavenly life, the second breath of the Spirit given to us as a down payment in the form of a down payment, an initial installment. The final full payment comes uh, when Christ returns. All right, anything else? Um, high priest as the new Adam. He's, oh, whenever the high priest is clothed, I was saying that the garments, uh, 
the garments, the same word for the garments of skins and the clothing of Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Those same terms are used for the high priest later, who is a a new Adam-like figure. Uh, He is redemptively recreated in the the image of God by that clothing, symbolized in his vestments, his clothing, which is a precondition for him to enter into the presence of God. So maybe you can think about it this way. You've got the first Adam and the last Adam. I've said a lot about that. But the high priest in between in Israel's worship is a typological um, Adam. Okay, he's like the first Adam and he prefigures the second Adam. He's a prefiguration, a foreshadow of that ultimate uh, Adam. Uh, the cherubim and the sword form a temple gate uh, from which the unclean persons are barred. Uh, that's what gives rise to the entrance liturgy at the gate of the temple. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Which we looked at in Psalm 24. And there was, of course, was a great desire to go into God's holy place. So the whole purpose of the tabernacle, which we're going to turn to now, uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, the whole purpose of the tabernacle is to show Israel the way into the presence of God. In all the sacrifices uh, that were carried out at the tabernacle, but ultimately in the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Uh, That's the day in Israel's year that the high priest could actually ascend the summit of the mountain and enter the most holy, holy place. Uh, I've got one quote here to read to you from uh, Michael Morales um, regarding this. The children of Adam now sojourn outside the door of God's dwelling, outside the light of his countenance. This expulsion from the divine presence is the central tragic event that drives the history of redemption, determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative. Indeed, all of the drama of Scripture is found in relation to the single point of focus, the Lord's opening up the way for humanity to dwell in His presence once more. In other words, Genesis 3.24 is... The, um, is the basis on which everything else that follows in Scripture is building. Their exclusion, their exile from the presence of God outside of the Holy of Holies, everything unfolds from that point, and the question is, how do we get back in? There's one way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14. And by the way, Jesus is very much building on the language of entering God's holy place because in my Father's house, the dwelling place of God, his heavenly temple. There are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Lord, show us the way. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way into the Father's house. There's only one way back into the Father's house, one way and one way alone, Christ and Christ alone. But that way into the Father's house, um, or way back into the Holy of Holies, can put it this way, you have, um, you have um, before the fall, you've got Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden having communion, fellowship with God in the Holy of Holies on earth at the top summit of Mount Eden. They're uh, driven out into exile, and after the fall, the only way into the holiest place is through Jesus Christ. And so this is the, 
think here, covenant of works, covenant of grace, pre-redemptive worship, redemptive worship. Redemptive worship is getting us back into the presence of God, not just in that original state, but in the higher state, bringing us to consummation. The promise of that is first given here in Genesis 3.15. And that's the first administration of that covenant of grace, which is promising this way back into the presence of God. That then is administered variously throughout this period until it reaches the New Testament, the coming of Christ. And I want to highlight just uh, briefly two different administrations of the covenant of grace. You have worship under the law, on the one hand, under the law, and I'm making this chart up as I go so it's not working out very good. And then you have worship under the gospel. And I don't know if those are the best terms to use because it can be misleading. It's not like there's no gospel here. This is, this is an administration of the covenant of grace, uh, which is the gospel. Um, but you have two different administrations of the same covenant of grace. In this administration of the covenant of grace, the way into the holiest place, the holy of holies, uh, we can call the Levitical way. The Levitical way. That Levitical way is revealed in the law that God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai, including all the sacrificial laws, including the tabernacle and everything else. That's all, the whole purpose of all of that is to show us the way back into the presence of God. Now, this Levitical way is not a different way than is revealed here. This and I'm taking this term from the author of Hebrews chapter 10, which we read earlier, is the new and living way. Do you remember that phrase? The new and living way through his flesh, that is the curtain. It's through Christ. It's not like this is a way into the presence of God apart from Christ. This is a, this is a type of this. It foreshadows that. It prefigures that. So that this typological high priest who enters into the holy, holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement by means of sacrifice is instituted here as um, sacramental signs of that promise here and is ultimately fulfilled with the coming of Christ here. And when that happens, the types, the, the ordinances that foreshadow the tabernacle, the sacrifices all give way to the reality signified in the promise and revealed here, okay? So that's where we're going with it. That's worship under the law, worship under the gospel. That's the movement we, we need to make. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Anything? The hardness of their hearts. As, yeah, it's not that it was unclear. It's clearly revealed in Scripture, but their hearts were far from God, so they're blinded by their sin to the truth. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? What time do we want to take our next break? Um, can we go till 11? Can we make it till 11? And then take a break at 11? And we'll take a 15-minute break. I promised you a 30-minute break at ele uh, next, didn't I? Uh, if you don't hold me to my word, we'll take a 15-minute break at 11 because we're going to break 12, or 12 for lunch. Um, and so let's go to 11. And any other questions before we kick off?
Deuteronomy, or not Deuteronomy, but the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, you have uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, Ten Commandments given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments are not just a set of rules, do's and don'ts. They are that, do this, don't do that, but they're not just a set of rules. They're part of a covenant arrangement, a covenant arrangement that God established with Israel. And as part of that covenant treaty, they specify the stipulations of the covenant. Covenants have stipulations, covenants have sanctions, and this is a covenant. So God, of course, had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and he was about to give them the promised land, and he established a covenant with them, which is called the Sinai Covenant, because that's where it was given, and sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, because Moses served as the mediator in that covenant-making ceremony that takes place here in Exodus. Now, what does this Mosaic Covenant teach us about worship? Well, first place we can look um, is in Exodus chapter 20 at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as you know, can be divided into two parts. The first part, uh, the first four commandments. The second part, the last six commandments. The first four commandments tell us about our love for God and our duty to God. The last uh, six commandments, our duty to our neighbor, how we are to love our neighbors as as ourselves. So... um, For our purposes, the main point we want to make here is that the first four commandments are about worship. They all have to do with the worship of God. In the first part of the Ten Commandments, God establishes true worship and forbids false worship. He defines true worship and establishes true worship uh, for his redeemed people, and he forbids false worship. The first commandment, no other gods before me, demands absolute and exclusive loyalty Loyalty to God, Israel's God, Yahweh, the Lord, and prohibits the worship of any other God. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, etc., requires the true worship of God and forbids the false worship of God. And I'm going to explain that more in just a second. The third commandment requires us to call on the name of the Lord and forbids any profane use of his name. Don't take his name in vain. And the fourth requires the observance of the Sabbath day as a holy day of worship. So the first four commandments are about the worship of God. Now one of the main lessons we know is that God himself establishes and regulates worship. Worship is not left to the inventions of man. It's not left to the thought and imagination of man, as Paul put it in Acts Acts 17. It's not left to the inventions of man. It's established and regulated by God himself. God alone has the right to institute worship, and he does institute worship and regulate it by his revealed will in the Holy Scriptures. And only that worship which God himself has established in his word is acceptable to him. So God not only tells us to worship him, but how to worship him. He tells us how to worship. He regulates our worship. God has given us certain ordinances through which he wants us to worship him, and we can't add to them or take away from them. That's in Deuteronomy 4.2 and Deuteronomy 12.3, and pretty much the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 12. Now, that idea is sometimes referred to as the regulative principle of worship. Have you heard that before? Regulative principle of worship. God regulates worship, and he regulates worship by the scriptures, in the scriptures. Now, one way to summarize the regulative principle, and this is probably the shortest definition you can find of the regulative principle is this, not to command is to forbid. Not to command is forbid. 
if God has not commanded us to do it in his word as an element of worship, then he has forbidden it. What is not commanded is forbidden. So whatever God hasn't commanded is, uh, what, whatever he hasn't prescribed is proscribed. If he hasn't ordained it, commanded it, then it's forbidden as an ordinance of worship. Now the first commandment, which you'll see in verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That commandment forbids the worship of any other gods besides God, Yahweh, the Lord. So it identifies the proper object of our worship. It tells us whom we are to worship. And And it demands absolute and exclusive loyalty to him and prohibits the worship of any other. It forbids idolatry, false worship and specifically the worship of any false god. Now, the second commandment, if you look at this, um, verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Verse 5 adds to that as the second half of that, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The second commandment also forbids um, idolatry, but it's a different species of idolatry. So the first forbids the worship of a false god, the second forbids the false worship of the true god. So you've got the same genus, two different species. In other words, first and second commandment are about idolatry. They both forbid idolatry. That's the genus. The species is the first commandment forbids the worship of another god. The second commandment, the false worship of the true god. Now, specifically in view in the second commandment are images of God. Images uh, are the images that are in view in the second commandment are not images of false gods but representations of the true God, Yahweh. Now, here's one way we know that. Uh, In Exodus chapter 32, when the Israelites made a golden calf or bull and used it in worship, they were not worshiping another God. They were worshiping Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah. Jehovah is another way of translating Yahweh. It's the name of God. Now, here's how you know that. Exodus 32.5. Aaron described the worship of the image, the bull, the golden calf, as, quote, a feast to Yahweh, a feast to Jehovah, a feast to the Lord. So the bull was a representation of Jehovah, of Yahweh. It was not intended, of course, to be a photographic likeness of God. They didn't make uh, an image of a bull because they thought that's what Jehovah looked like. Um, but it was a symbolic representation of his power. That's what the bull symbolized, power. The Israelites were attempting to harness and channel the power of God by making an image of his power, the bull. In other words, uh, and this is how one writer put it, and I really like the way he put it because it emphasizes the blasphemous nature of their, their idolatrous act there. They were trying to walk God around on the leash. They were trying to make God their servant. They made an image of his power so they can harness his power and channel his power and walk him around on a leash. So that's the kind of images forbidden in the second commandment, visual representations of Jehovah, of the Lord. So the first and second commandments forbid two different uh, species of idolatry. The first forbids the worship of a false god, second, false worship of the true god. The first identifies the proper object of our worship. It tells us whom to worship. The second identifies the proper mode or manner of our worship. It tells us how to worship him. And we must not worship God 
as the Westminster Confession 21, uh, paragraph 1 says, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Now, that's that idea of the regulative principle, principle of worship again. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. That's a violation of, that's, that's a false worship of the true God. They were worshiping Yahweh. This is, see, um, in Leviticus chapter 10, the interesting thing is if you have, that is the ugliest chart I've ever made. <laughs> and I was so ashamed and embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> I should have thought that one, should have thought that one through, but, um, um, okay, so, Israelites make it to Sinai. God tells them to build the tabernacle and gives them all these detailed instructions on how to do it. All of Exodus 25 through 40, all of those chapters are taken up with the building of the tabernacle. Leviticus um, gives instructions for how to worship in the tabernacle. And the first service of worship that actually occurs in the tabernacle is in Leviticus chapter 9. And it's in that service of worship when the two sons of Aaron are killed because they offer to God, Leviticus 10, strange fire on the altar, which God had not commanded. They were worshiping Yahweh in a way that he had not commanded. So um, not to command is to forbid. They were worshiping God in a forbidden way because God hadn't commanded them to worship that way. Yes, that's a good example of the regulator principle of worship. Yes, sir. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes, that's a very good question. And uh, I did a lot of research and work on that and gave a lecture on that subject, I think it was a three years ago, at the Reformed Forum Conference, and that's available online. So, for example, uh, you can find it at the Reformed Forum website, which is reformedforum.org. You can find it on YouTube. That's where I go. It's just easier to, to search there. If you go to YouTube and type in, you can type in my name or Image of God and Images of God, which is the name of the... Um, address. My argument is that the second commandment um, prohibits images of God, including images of Jesus. Images of Jesus would be a violation of the the second commandment. Now, I spend 45 minutes making that argument in that lecture. Whether it's convincing or not, you'd have to listen listen and see. But I think images of Jesus are also forbidden in, in the second commandment. I think the argument is, well, uh, once the incarnation occurs, when the second person of the Trinity who's invisible takes on um, a human nature, becomes a man, then that undoes the prohibition of the second commandment with regard to the second person of the Trinity. Uh, of course, we wouldn't make images of the Father or images of the Spirit but, uh, or, of the, or of the Trinity, but you can make images of Jesus because he had a human body. I mean, couldn't he have been seen? And if they had photography, couldn't he have been photographed uh, back then? Um, I've got a few sermons on this too. Uh, 
but uh, I think my opinion, and this is not just my opinion, it's, it's the position of our church, the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it's in our confession and catechisms. Images of Christ are forbidden uh, to. Uh, as objects of worship, now those who use images in worship, images of Jesus in worship and other images, for example, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses icons, and it's a very important part of their liturgy. They can't have worship without the icons, really. And the Roman Catholic Church uses um, statues and other images as aids to worship. Um, I think that's a violation of the second, second commandment. Now, that raises a whole host of questions. And you said you weren't trying to get me in trouble. I've, I can do that on my own. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, the question I always get well, is, well, <laughs> what about... Um, the burning bush, and can we have an image of that? Or what about crosses? Or can you have crosses in 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 worship? Are other kinds of images in, in scripture? Or can you draw a cloud on top of a mountain, or something like that, representing the glory cloud? Wouldn't that be a violation of of that too? I don't have time to address that <laughs> in this conference, but I do sort of address it in the the other lecture lecture I gave. Yes, sir. Yes, and then also in John 17, um, uh, Jesus says, uh, Jesus talks about those who do not see him and yet believe. And then in John chapter 20, blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. Uh, we don't see Christ now, and now is the time of not seeing him. Uh, David Van Drunen has a good article uh, online regarding images of Jesus. It's it was published in New Horizons. Um, it's very good, a very good argument against uh, images of Jesus. Why we shouldn't have images of Jesus. It's another one I would commend to you. Other questions? Yes, right. Yes, uh-huh. Um, I wasn't going to deal with that. <laughs> and uh, I've dealt with it in other places. Um, I think um, we need to, I think if you think about worship under the Old Covenant, which had all kinds of um, sacred days, holy days, liturgical festivals that were instituted, um, they are all, if I can add to this ugly chart here, so this, everything before here is pre-eschatological. Eschatological, and I can't finish the word, or sub-eschatological. Everything from here until the eschaton, which is the end of the world when Christ comes again, is semi-eschatological. And then, of course, here, everything is fully eschatological, because at the end of the world, we will enter the eschaton. There's a shift from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship that can be described as a shift from a pre-eschatological mode of worship to an eschatological mode of worship. And when that shift occurs, there's a radical change in the way we worship God. And the types and shadows that were instituted here give way to the substance, the reality 
which is revealed in Jesus Christ. And the shift that occurs is a shift upward. It's a move from lower register to upper register worship, not fully and completely, because this is only a semi-eschatologized mode of worship, only a semi-heavenized mode of worship. It's not, a, it's not the full eschaton, fully eschatologized mode of worship. And so um, why do they have a liturgical calendar, a church calendar with all of these sacred feast days? Because it's all pointing forward to what Christ is going to accomplish here. Why do they give way? Because the reality comes or the substance comes. And so the earthly forms, which are imitations of heavenly realities, the earthly copies and shadows and types that God instituted here um, are removed. They are removed with the coming of Jesus Christ. So we don't worship under these forms or these modes of worship. If we were to worship in that way, we would have an underrealized eschatology, right? Because the eschaton has been inaugurated here. It's consummated here. Um, we can also err on the other side in having an overrealized uh, eschatology, too, uh, which some churches do because they won't recognize any place for baptism or the Lord's Supper. They don't believe in any sacraments. They don't believe in ordination to ministry and stuff. Think of like the uh, certain, uh, certain um, groups, the Amish and the Brethren groups, um, they don't recognize any earthly forms at all because it's completely heavenized. So they've got some sort of over-realized eschatology going on here. But um, there, I think there's a violation of the regulative principle of worship in churches that want to institute a church calendar because they're adding things to the worship of God that God hasn't instituted. And when they want to fall back and say, well, God did institute them here, the, their error in their thinking is that they don't recognize that these were pre-eschatological, sub-eschatological forms of worship that find a fulfillment here, and they don't carry through uh, to the New Testament because there's a shift upward. There's a move, move upward. And we will get to that, uh, maybe, if we have time. Any other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Right. That's what I would say. Yeah, so the question is, uh, well, what about a particular day of worship, a weekly uh, day of worship? Um, I have made the argument that um, the weekly day of worship was not instituted here, that it was instituted here. It's, pre, it's a pre-redemptive ordinance of worship that was given in the covenant of works. And so the most basic meaning and significance of the Sabbath day is not derived from a redemptive setting, but a pre-redemptive setting. And so even though the redemptive significance of the Sabbath day as it's administered here finds its fulfillment in Christ here, it nevertheless had, has a more basic meaning that continues. And what is that more basic meaning? What does it mean? It means this. It means the eschaton. So on this side of the eschaton, this continues under here, okay? That would be my argument. But, and someone was asking about this earlier, uh, there's a shift in the sequence of work, then rest, because the probation that was prescribed here, work to enter the rest, has been fulfilled here. So there's a shift in the day, right? From the last day of the week, seventh day, to the first day of the week, which signifies what? The Lord's Day is not a pre-eschatological ordinance of worship. It's a semi-eschatological or order of worship. And if you have no weekly day of worship, 
you've got an over-realized eschatology. If you're worshiping on Saturday, you've got an under-realized eschatology. See? Is that helpful? Make any sense? That's the way I would address it. I think that's the way, I think that's the way Scripture develops it. Right, and I had a, I have a I have a good friend who's uh, he's in the OPC and he he goes to church every Lord's Day. He's as faithful as anyone else as I know, but he he thinks the day what whatever day you want to worship on doesn't matter as long as it's one in seven because he he interprets the fourth commandment as a principle of one in seven. You set one day aside as holy to the Lord, one in seven, whatever day whatever day you pick. Now, as I said for. You know, 40 years or so, however long he's been a Christian, has been faithful to worship on the Lord's Day. But he doesn't think there's anything holy about that day. And I think he misunderstood the principle here. The principle here is not one day in seven. The principle here is work, then rest. That's the principle uh, of the Sabbath. you got to take a break because I promised you we're going to take a break. Let's Rest, then work, right, because it's, it's not an ordinance of the covenant of works, it's an ordinance of the covenant of grace, right? Rest, then work. The question then would be, why, if this is an administration of the covenant of grace, why was it seventh day and not the first day? I think it's the seventh day, not the first day, because although it is an administration of the covenant of grace, the probation isn't fulfilled to the fullness of time. So it's still the seventh day until this happens because it's still pre-eschatological. Okay, let's take a break.